Well, if you would be turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, we're going to be looking at verses 57, and 60, 57 through 62. We're going to take a brief pause this morning in our Roman series to look at Luke chapter 9. And as you're turning there, I just want to say that our aim this morning is to be filled with a fresh sense of the value of being a disciple of Jesus. The value of being a disciple of Jesus. There's nothing more important for us as believers than that we follow Jesus. And I know if you've been a Christian for a while, especially you've been in the church for a long while, that might seem like the most obvious of statements. But remember, each day and each week, there are a thousand different things that compete not only for our attention, but also compete to make us anxious or compete for our affection. And, and so it's good for us as Christians every now and again to go back to basics, so to speak, to, to, to go back to the, the, the rock-solid reality that we have been made for Jesus. And there's nothing more important for us week in and week out than that we lean into that fact, that we, that we, be, we follow Jesus with everything that we got. So above all the different clamor that you hear each day and each week, can you say, over all the things that make you anxious, over all the things that compete for your affection, can you say, there's nothing more important for me than that I follow Jesus. May the Lord use his word this morning to fill us with a fresh conviction, not only that that's true, but a renewed desire to pursue it with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind. Let's see it from the text itself. This is Luke chapter nine, beginning in verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, in these verses, we learn of three would-be, would-be disciples who come to Jesus with what appears to be some initial enthusiasm, some initial excitement to follow him. Now, we know from what Luke tells us earlier in this chapter that Jesus and the disciples are on the road to Jerusalem. And Jesus knows that it's in Jerusalem that he's going to be betrayed and put on trial and crucified. So he's on the road, so to speak, to his ultimate suffering and death. Now, let's not gloss over this. He, he's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the one who, above everyone else, most deserves his people's love and affection and obedience. And he's the one who's most offended by our sin. And yet, rather than coming in the world to judge or condemn us, he's come to go to Jerusalem to die in our place. I mean, the world has never known a savior like this. We should never get over that fact. But the disciples, they don't really get it. They don't realize that Jesus is on the road to suffering. And these would-be disciples, they don't understand it either. And so they come to Jesus with some initial enthusiasm to follow him, and Jesus' responses to them test their level of commitment. I mean, do they really understand what being a disciple of Jesus is all about? And that's not just a question for them, that's a question that's pertinent for us today too, that we ought to ask ourselves. Do we understand what it means to follow Jesus? 
Now, in your Bibles, depending on what translation you're using, is probably a, a section heading above these verses. And depending on the translation that you're using, it probably says something like the cost of following Jesus. It's that way in the ESV or the NIV. Or maybe like something like the cost of discipleship. Or even according to one translation I looked at, exacting discipleship. Now, those section headings were put there by Bible translators to help us navigate our way around the text and to remember what different chunks of Scripture are teaching. They can be very useful in that regard, so long as we remember a couple of things. So long as we remember, they're not originally part of Luke's gospel, so those words don't have the same authority as the rest of Scripture. And also, and importantly, so that we don't get the bad idea that once we've read the section headings, well you know, you, you pretty much got the, the gist of it. You don't really need to pay too much attention to what the words actually say. That'd be a bad practice to make. Sometimes we can do that. So as long as we don't get that bad idea, these can be really helpful. Now, don't get me wrong. I do think that the cost of following Jesus or the cost of discipleship is a helpful way to think about what these verses teach us. But, but once we've got that idea, we ought to ask ourselves, why does Jesus want us to count the cost of following him? Why does he want us to count the cost of following him? Is it sort of, you know, truth in advertising? You know, like Jesus is aware that he's got something on offer here, but also there's other stuff out there, other paths to salvation, so to speak, or, or the good life. And so, you know, if what he has on offer perfectly suits your needs, that's great, but you ought to, you ought to make sure, you know, truth in advertising, I've only got so much and you need to make sure this really fits you. Is that what he's doing? Or, or is he worried we'll miss out on something better? Is it so that we don't get in over our heads? Is, is he worried it's just going to be a little bit too much? You're going to you know, drown. You don't want to jump in the deep end. Maybe what you need to do is stay in the shallow end and, and wade for a little bit. Is that what he's doing? Or, or is he a bit insecure? Is he worried that we'll get disillusioned with him? I don't think it's any of that. Because we see in these verses that Jesus wants us to count the cost of following him because, and this is important, because we are convinced there is nothing more important for us than that we follow him. Those are the kinds of followers that Jesus is seeking, and that's why he wants us to count the cost. Now, now notice, these would-be disciples attached great importance to following Jesus. They did. They were willing to do it, first of all, in a time when many of their contemporaries weren't willing to follow him. They were willing to do it. They were even willing to make some sacrifices to do so. Sure, they had some family business they had to attend to, but once all that wrapped up, Jesus will come find you, will follow you. So they're willing to make some sacrifices. They're willing to work hard to follow him. But, and this is the crucial bit, but they did not attach ultimate importance to following Jesus. There were objectives, there were relationships in their lives, there were things they had to do that had just a little bit more sway. So Jesus wants us to count the cost of following him so that we will focus not on what we're giving up to know him, but that so, we will, so that we will know better what we have gained by following him. We're so often, especially if you're like me, you, you tend to think this way. We're so often tempted to talk about discipleship, even to think about discipleship, more in terms of the things that we've had to give up to follow Jesus, rather than the things that we've gained by following him. Don't you notice that? I've noticed it in my own conversation from, from time to time. I, I talk about discipleship. I talk about following the Lord, not exclusively, but more often than I would like in terms of this is what I've had to give up. This is what I'm bearing. And, and it almost come across as a sort of like this grin and bear it, stoical resolve. Well, you know, I trust that it'll pan out eventually. But, but, but my, I've noticed that my conversation is less seasoned with this is what the Lord has done for me. This is good. But that's what Jesus wants us to focus on. 
We see that in these verses. He's telling us not to focus on what we lose by following him, but to see the emptiness of the things we so often allow to stand in the way of coming to him with all of our heart and soul and strength and might and mind. He wants us, in other words, to see the superior worth that he is. So that's our key truth this morning. Simple as it is, there's nothing more important for us than following Jesus. That's our key truth, and in our remaining time, I want to show you from these verses three reasons that are given to us why that's true. These verses aren't given to us to discourage us from following Jesus. Quite the opposite. They're given to us so that we would be encouraged to follow him, but encouraged to follow him with carefulness, with humility, and with prayer for grace. So, three reasons. Reason number one, there is nothing more important for us than following Jesus because we were made to know and to love God because we were made to know and to love God. See it in the interaction with the first person here. This is in verses 57 and 58. Philip comes up to Jesus and he says, I will follow you wherever you go. I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So here we have, we've got a guy who's willing to follow Jesus pretty much any place. Jesus, you're going to Jerusalem? I'll be there. Jesus, maybe you're going back to Samaria, rain down fire from heaven on those Samaritans that didn't give you your due. Man, I'll be there too. Wherever you go, you know, I'll be on the front lines. Whatever you're doing, I'll be the first one to walk in those doors. I want to see where you're at. I want to see what you're doing. I want to I be at the front lines. But Jesus challenges him to see the discipleship is not first a matter of being in the same places that Jesus is so that you can get the same sort of accolades or be, have a front row seat to what's going on. It's a matter of being with Jesus himself. Do you see it? This guy put the accent, the emphasis upon going with Jesus to certain places, but he forgot to see that it's being with Jesus that matters. It's not mainly where each of us is. It's the kind of people that we become where we are. And this guy failed to recognize who Jesus was, who it was that he was really going to be following. So Jesus challenges him with this. We're not made for petty things. We're not made for the sort of accolades that can come along that so often we long for, that come along with being on the front row seat, you know, in with the right people, in the right crowd. We're made for Jesus himself. Jesus himself said it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So to know Jesus in this way is to know and be, be known and loved by the one we were made to be known and loved by. It's to be folded into the divine life that you and I were made for. So, so Jesus isn't challenging this guy to sort of say like, and often I, I've read it this way, well, you know, there's going to be some camping involved. Are you okay with that? You know? Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, you might have to camp with me. Or, you know, we might have to spend a couple of nights in the Motel 8 in Jerusalem. You know, are you down for that? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, are you with me? Is it me that you want to be with? Is it me that you're looking to? I've used this illustration before, and I'm a little bit, hes- a little bit hesitant to use it again, but-, but I almost can't help myself because I just love the way that it gets at the reality of the Christian life. Years ago, John Stott gave this illustration. He said there was a man in India who became a Christian out of the Hindu faith. And in his zeal to go tell everybody what Jesus had done for him, he finds the first man in the street in his neighborhood and tells him, I've become a Christian. And the man said, well, okay. What did you find in Christianity that you didn't have in Hinduism? And the man said, I found Jesus Christ. And the guy said, yeah, but, but you know, the world is a broken place. 
You know, uh, there, there are marriages that are messed up. We ourselves feel that. There are uh, family problems, relational dynamics that need to be fixed. There's the problem in, in our countries and in our neighborhoods. And, and there's so much is wrong. What better principle for life? You know, what better doctrine have you found uh, in Christianity that you didn't have in Hinduism? And the man said, the better doctrine that I found is Jesus Christ. Now, now, don't get that twisted. That's not him dodging that question. You know, sort of like the Sunday school answer when you don't really know what it is. So you say, well, you know, it has to be Jesus in some way. And you know, who, who's going to say no to Jesus? So it must be Jesus. You know, that's, that's not what he's doing. It, 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 he knows, yes, that there are problems in the world. He knows that, that there are things that need to be addressed. He's not trying to dodge that. He's saying, what I've come into contact with is not an idea mainly. It's Jesus. It's a man. It's a person. And, and he's changed me. He's helped me to see me in a new light. He's helped me to see the the reality that I was made for. He's drawn me into that. And yes, the more I come to know him, the more that's going to change who I am. And that's going to change the way I think about my marriage and and my work and my country and how I'm involved in the big issues of life. But not because I've come into contact with an idea. It's not a doctrine I'm following. It's a person. It's Jesus Christ. So foxes have holes. Birds have nests. Politicians have White houses and and palaces and workplaces have offices and families have homes and disciples have Jesus. And that's enough. So there's nothing more important for us than that we follow Jesus because we were made to know and to love God. That's reason number one. Reason number two, there is nothing more important for us than following Jesus because only Jesus can give us life. Because only Jesus can give us life. See it in the interaction with the second man here in verses 59 and 60. Jesus says to this guy, follow me. And he responds, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So here's a man who wants to follow Jesus. He does, but there's a pressing family matter he's got to attend to first. His father is dead and needs to be buried. Now, I need to pause here and tell you that there are some commentators who think that what he's asking for isn't a little bit of time to go attend a funeral so much as he's saying, look, I'm a son, and in our culture, that brings certain obligations with it. I've got a father to look after. So the father may not be dead just yet, but, he, but he's saying, look, throughout the rest of my father's natural life, throughout the rest of his declining years, I have obligations, and I've got to look to those. I can't just leave all those behind and throw everything that you know, I, I'm responsible for out the window and follow you, Jesus. So, so once my family obligations are over and done with, once I've seen my father through, through his declining years, and he's buried, then I'll come and find you, and, and I'll follow you. Just give me time to wrap up my obligations. And that's a good thing, too, right? Like, you've told me in your word you know, honor your father and mother. So I'm just being a good son. So give me time to wrap up what I've got to do and I'll come and find you. But I think the commentators are trying to soften Jesus' statement a little bit too much because it's not the time element that Jesus objects to. It's not, well, you know, because you're asking for all these decades, that becomes a problem. If it was just a couple days to go to a funeral, all right then. Because he says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. What Jesus objects to is not the time element. It's that this man doesn't recognize who's standing before him, the source of life himself. What he essentially is saying is, look, it's not just your father who's dead or dying. It's everyone who doesn't follow me. Outside of following me is death. They're dead. And for you to focus your attention on that is nothing more than a dead man burying a dead man. You've got to follow me. Jesus is saying, everyone who does not follow me is outside the source of life. So it's not, don't go to funerals. 
It's not family obligations don't matter. It's not even, well, fam, you know, unbelieving family members are a bit of a distraction and a drag, so if you can pawn them off on somebody else, that's okay. No, it's not any of those things. It's I am the source of life. And if you want to have a future and a hope, not only for your dead and dying father, but for your neighbors and for yourself and for your community, you've got to follow me. If you want to be able to go back to them with something meaningful to say, not just a, a method to cope with reality as you seem to think it really is, but a, a, a message of redemption and reconciliation and hope for, the now, for right now and for the future, you've got to follow me. Do you see it in the command that Jesus gives this guy right after this? He says, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm not taking you out of the world so that your family doesn't matter anymore. I'm saying, follow me so that you can go into the world proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, that the king is here. There's a solution to death and to brokenness, and it's me. And you've got to follow me if you're going to have something to say. Following Jesus won't ultimately take us out of the world. It won't take this man away from that, his family. It won't take us away from our families. It will send us back to them with a message of redemption. And the only way that's going to happen is if we're following after Jesus. You see how Jesus closely connects these two things together so that the more we follow him, the more we're able to go out into the world with a message of redemption and hope and reconciliation. And the more we long to see things made right, the more we long to be in the world as agents of, of, of justice and hope and, and joy and every good thing, the more we've got to focus on following Jesus. If we get these things twisted and, and make our mission the central reality of our lives without following Jesus, without leaning into our discipleship, it'll be dead and sterile. And if we see discipleship as something that takes us away from the world, we'll fundamentally miss what Jesus is doing here. He's inviting us to follow him, and out of following him, we get sent into the world with him on a message of redemption and reconciliation and hope. This has big implications to the way we view our lives. And I've really been helped as I think about these things by this quote from C.S. Lewis, because I think he really gets at the heart of the matter here, what it means for us to be disciples of Jesus. He says this, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. The terrible thing, and he means by that the really difficult thing, the terrible thing, the almost impossible thing, is to hand over your whole self, all your wishes and precautions to Christ. But it is far easier than what we are all trying to do instead. For what we are trying to do is to remain what we call ourselves, to keep personal happiness as our great aim in life, and yet at the same time to be good. We are all trying to let our mind and our heart go their own way, centered on money or pleasure or ambition, and hoping, in spite of this, to behave honestly and chastely and humbly. And this is exactly what Christ warned us you could not do. And he's exactly right. We cannot do that. What Jesus calls us to do is to follow him because he alone is the source of life. And the more we let him become us, the more we get folded into his divine life, the more we ourselves can be agents and ambassadors of that very life to the people we care about most and the situations that we care about most. It's the greatest antidote to anxiety that there ever was, that we as Christians get folded into that message. We get folded into that mission that Jesus is on. We've experienced it in our own lives and following him enables us more and more to be a part of that in the lives of those who are near us in our spheres of influence. So there's nothing more important for us than following Jesus because only Jesus can give us life. That's reason number two. Finally, reason number three. There's nothing more important than following Jesus because only Jesus invites us into God's redemptive mission for the life of the world. 
Only Jesus invites us into God's redemptive mission for the life of the world. See it in the response to the third man here in verses 61 and 62. Another fellow says, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus says to him, no one who puts his hand at the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Well, again, another seemingly harsh statement, right? This guy just wants to go home. He just wants to say farewell to those who know him and love him best. But Jesus says to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, this was an old proverb even in Jesus' day, and we can see how it'd be true. If somebody tells you, all right, you know, go plow a straight line in this field, and you put your hand to that plow, you're not going to do it if you're just constantly looking behind yourself. Am I plowing a straight line? No, you've got to look at what you're doing. You've got to look ahead, and if you look behind yourself, you're going to mess it up. And Jesus applies it to this man's discipleship, or, or potentially his lack thereof. You can't truly follow him if your face is turned in another direction. Now, let's not hear this wrong. Jesus doesn't mean for this to be a test that we got to pass in order to make it into the kingdom of God. As if to say, well, if you focus on the kingdom of God to the exclusion of everything else, then, you know, oh, okay, all right. If I, if I judge your, your determination to be exclusive enough, fine, all right, I'll let you into the kingdom of God. That's not what he's saying. What he means is the kingdom of God is the kind of thing that for those who know its power, it draws out a, a single-minded determination to have it and to know it, and to be able to tell other people about it. All, you know, all of us want to be useful, right? And maybe we don't have grand ambitions like you know, running for office or becoming the CEO of a company, but, but all of us in our various spheres of influence want to be useful. We want to be people who make a difference in the places that God has put us into. And only Jesus invites us into his mission to bring redemption to every tongue and tribe and nation, to bring redemption to your spheres of influence that you're in. You know, as I was thinking about this, because so often I think we hear about this, you know, we hear about this call to discipleship, we hear this call to mission, and we immediately go meta. You know, we almost can't help ourselves. Well, you know, maybe I'm called to be a missionary or minimally start a Bible study, and yes and amen. If that's what God is calling you to, we need you, and we want to say yes and amen to that. We want to pray for you, we want to equip you, go for it. But for us, most of the time, this this lands in the ordinary day-to-day of our normal lives, and so as I thought about this, I was reminded of an illustration from my own family. Uh, last year in March, my, my grandfather passed away. Now, Pop-Up, he was a music teacher in high school throughout his whole career. And then when he retired, he became the worship director at his local Methodist church. And, and when he passed away, the testimony from pretty much everybody who got up to speak, from grandkids to kids to church members, people who knew him best, friends and family, almost everyone said, well, Pop-Up was, you know, the rock in the midst of the storm. You know, nothing seemed to ruffle him. He, he was our non-anxious presence. You know, whenever something was troubling in the world or, you know, even in our own lives, we could go to him and we could just we could find a comforting ear, somebody who would listen and just not get tangled up in too much stuff. He, he was always just steady. And, and, and almost everyone kind of attributed that to, you know, that just, it's just the way he was, just kind of the way that God made him. We're so grateful for the Lord that he made him that way and that he put him into our lives that we could have somebody who was steady like that in the midst of so much that was going on in our lives. We're so grateful for that. So that was the testimony from most of the people who got up to speak. And a couple months ago, my aunt sent me his old pew Bible, the Bible that he had used as the worship director in his local church. And as I was flipping through it, the thing that stood out to me was Almost every passage that was highlighted or marked in some way, pencil marks in the margins, had to do with calling out to the Lord in times of trouble. When we're downcast and sad and afraid, 
call out to me. Over and over and over again, the things that he had turned to in his Bible and, and committed to memory and, and marked down to remember were encouragements, inducements from the Lord to call out to him when we're anxious and afraid. There were the usual ones like Psalm 23 and some unusual ones too, like Psalm 100. But over and over and over again, the thing that he had turned to in his Bible, so far as I could tell, most often was encouragements to remember that the Lord is good and that he calls his people to call out to him when they're afraid. He even had a little, uh, a little paper filled with all these notes and, and things like, that said like, um, you know, when I'm anxious for my children, go to these Bible passages. When I'm in a tiff with my wife, go to these Bible passages. When I'm anxious about the future, go to these Bible passages. And what I realized was all the things that we were saying were just, a, were just the way that God had made him, you know, his steadiness, his non-anxious presence, that we were, what we were witnessing was the fruit of discipleship. On the outside, it looked like, well, that's just the way that he was. But the reality was, this is who he'd become in conversation with Jesus. This is who he'd become by following Jesus. And I just offer that to us as an encouragement. So often, we go meta. We think, well, discipleship means, you know, or making a difference in the world means these big, extraordinary, one-time acts that I make. No, more often, it's little things. It's the way in which you, by your discipleship, will testify to a reality that's greater than your life and that's making a difference for you. You know, I don't think I had more than one or two conversations in the whole of my life with my grandfather about spiritual things. Partly that was just because he was a man of his generation and and intensely private things they just didn't typically talk about a lot. We talked a lot about his career and my career. We talked a lot about sports. We talked a lot about politics, conversations about many, many different things. And you know what? I hardly don't remember most of them at all. But I will remember this. And even now, some of those Bible passages I've marked for myself, and what a great encouragement it is to me when I'm feeling anxious and afraid to remember my own grandfather felt this sometimes, and this is where he went, and God saw him through. So, so folks, this is, this is what it means for us to be drawn into God's redemptive mission for the life of the world. It, it doesn't usually mean from the day to day that we make these big, grand impacts that seem immediately obvious that they're wonderful and amazing to us. It means that we ourselves lean into our discipleship, and we have no idea the kind of impact that that's going to make in future generations for the next generation for the life of the world. This is what Jesus calls us into, and only Jesus calls us into this kind of redemptive mission. So here's a question for us, the one question I have for us this morning. In what ways are you daily seeking to apply your life to God's redemptive mission for the life of the world? Now, there are two things about this question that I want to briefly pause over. First of all, in what ways are you daily seeking to apply your life to God's redemptive mission? So it's not just have you made this one big, one-time decision, well, I'm going to do this for my discipleship, but in what ways, from the moment your head leaves the pillow each morning to the moment you go to bed that night, in what ways are you daily seeking to apply your life to God's redemptive mission to the life of the world? And then the second thing is, notice the way that's worded. It's not, in what ways are you seeking to apply the Bible to your life? Sometimes I think that's just a bad question. Not all the time, but sometimes it can kind of betray that we still think that our lives are the center of the story, the main thing that's going on. And so we've got this set of circumstances, and here's the Bible, and I'm seeking to apply the Bible to this set of circumstances, rather than recognizing, here's the way that God has wired me, here's the gifts that he's given me, here's the circumstances in life that he's presently placed me in, here's the spheres of influence that I'm engaged in. How can I apply that to the story of the Bible, what God is doing in the world to bring peace and hope and joy in and through Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit. How can I apply my life to that? And how can we do that day to day? 
And how can we not grow weary in doing that day to day by going back again and again when we fail, when we mess up, to the gospel, to the fact that there's nothing more important for us than that we follow Jesus because only Jesus is inviting us into this redemptive mission for the life of the world. So those three reasons are given to us, that we be encouraged from these verses to follow after Jesus with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind. There's nothing more important for us than that we follow Jesus because we were made for God. We were made to know and to love him. There's nothing more important for us than that we follow Jesus because only Jesus can give us life. There's nothing more important for us than that we follow Jesus because only Jesus invites us into his redemptive mission for the life of the world. So Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62 teaches us simply this. There is nothing more important for us than following Jesus. May we be a church, may we be a people who lean into this reality, who are filled with the fresh conviction that it's true. Not only that it's true, but that it draws out of us a renewed desire day after day after day to make it a real experience for us in the quotidian, in the normal warp and woof of just ordinary life, that we would know that this is a wonderful reality we've been called into. Folks, will we never get over the, the glorious reality that, that our discipleship represents something that is just so wonderful we could hardly dream it up for ourselves if we were given the task. We've been called out of sin and into light. We've been called into God's redemptive mission for the life of the world. May the Lord help us to see it and to believe it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your call upon our lives in discipleship. Lord, we thank you for drawing us out of our sin and self-centeredness, the sort of things that we often threw up in the path of discipleship, the sort of things that we focused on to the exclusion of you. Lord, we thank you that you've overcome that for us in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we ask, Lord, that you would more and more help us to recognize this wonderful reality that you've called us into, that there's nothing more important for us than that we follow Jesus because we were made for you, Lord. We were made to know and to love you. There's nothing more important for us because you alone can give us life. Lord, we've experienced that in our own lives. We ask that more and more we would remember it and we would apply it in the ways that we engage and deal with the various things that come to us even this very week. Lord, help us to remember that you've called us into a redemptive mission for the life of the world. You are on the move. You are doing wonderful and marvelous things to draw people into your kingdom and you've invited us to be a part of it. Help us, Lord, to see this as the wonderful thing that it really is and to engage in it with all of our strength and heart and soul and mind so that we, Lord, would give you great glory in the ways that we continue to follow hard after you, and you would get the benefit of seeing us, your people, at work in the life of the world in the ways that you are uniquely engaged in, Lord. Help us to see that this is a wonderful thing that you've called us to. We ask this all in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.